Too many days in the darkness. Welcome to Prevention is Cure, brought to you by Precure.com, the podcast which brings you the latest in science and practice and challenging mainstream medicine and finding new and exciting ways of having a happier and healthy life. This series is looking specifically at mental health. We've become really concerned about the lack of translation of what science knows into what medicine does. In most societies, including the one I live in, one in five of us will have a serious mental health problem at some stage. The infrastructure, the practice, the gap between treatment and best practice is massive. This podcast series aims to do something about it. Prevention is Cure. I'm your host, Professor Grant Schofield. Today I'm talking to George Henderson. Now, George Henderson's pretty well known in nutrition circles. He's a highly published self-made academic, no tertiary qualifications, a long and colourful history of becoming highly educated on his own bat. He's published dozens of really interesting high-level academic papers in some of the world's top medical journals. At the same time, he comes from a background of addiction. George was a drug addict. He's tried virtually everything. And if you're thinking about learning more about addictions and you don't know much about it, then this is a great place to start. George is interesting, lively, quirky, eccentric, and highly knowledgeable. You're going to learn a lot here. Here's George. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight all right, well, we're here with George Henderson. How's it going, Hello. George? Hello, Grant. It's going good, yes. So George has been on the podcast before and we discussed your long and colourful uh, flamboyant history. Uh, could we, we just sort of do the two-minute version? Well, two-minute version was that um, I've broken the Misuse of Drugs Act since... The Misuse of Drugs Act 1975 since about 1975. Yep. And um, consequently, I've, I've had multiple addictions and... Um, I've had to get over over them, um, and you know if I if I use a substance now, it has to be you know it's not an addiction. It has to be not an addiction because if I'm addicted, you know that's I don't want to go through all that again. Yeah. And um, and basically, I I started coming off the substances I was addicted to when I started treating my Hep C with supplements, and when I started putting high levels of antioxidants into my body and replacing things that I'd obviously been deficient in, I started thinking less like an addict and more like a person who was doing these things for pleasure and was thinking, I'm not enjoying it anymore, I'm going to stop, and kind of making those kind of rational, hedonic decisions. And, um, and that kind of got me out of that space and um, enabled me to make the changes in my life that um, enabled me to get off the, the hardest stuff, and um, which would be the opioids that I was using, and um, get back into a normal life. Oh, yeah, and so you managed to pick up hepatitis C Oh, yes, and I picked up hepatitis C, and I picked up, you know, I lost most of my teeth. And, the, you know, uh, the part of being an addict is you're not only addicted to a substance, but you're also liable to a raft of health complications to do with the way you use that substance or the effect of the substance as well. So it's not just a brain disease. Yeah. Um, often, often you know, the person who's going to present was not just a brain disease, but with some physical, possibly physical complications that they're managing. Okay, so the interesting thing when I found out all this history, right, is that, so you've gone on from there to actually be a huge contributor in the, in the academic and public health world around uh, nutrition, um, you, you're, you're sort of a live wire online and making sensible coherent comments, but not only that, you're actually publishing uh, academic papers. Yeah, I've published a few. I haven't published one for a while because it gets mm, a bit off-putting. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of tedious and off-putting, but I'm still commenting in there. Yeah. Um, um, 
got asked to review a paper the other day. I've reviewed a couple of things, yeah. even though I'm not qualified. And uh, I want to make an important disclaimer here that I'm not qualified in the addiction field or any other field. I'm not an expert, and I don't even really work in it, except occasionally as a volunteer. So do take what I say under that. But you have some lived experience in the... Uh, oh, I have enormous lived experience, and I've been in the community of other people with lived, the same, you know, with similar lived experiences. Yeah. So it's very easy, and I reckon I was guilty of this with you, so when you, before you get to know someone, you know, how exceptionally smart you are, then you hear drug addict, and there's a stereotype that comes to mind, right? It's like, yeah. obviously not smart, because it on basic logic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But, but, but actually when you get talked to you, this, that community is not full of dummies. And in fact, you've, one of the ways you, reason you know so much about biochemistry and that is you were reading textbooks on biochemistry. Well, that's right. I, but I think this may be a New Zealand phenomenon because <laughs> we did not, and, and it may be dying out because yeah. now you can get any substance you want um, over the internet or from your local gang or whatever and you don't have to know anything about it. Yeah. You know, you don't even really have to even know what it's doing to you, and um, and uh, it was very different in our day because we were always looking for a substitute for the thing we couldn't get. So we had yeah. to understand what that did and what the substitute could, you know, what possible substitute we could look for. We might want to make the thing we couldn't get, um, and and so this is a specifically New Zealand phenomenon, and probably is is probably dying out yeah. of actually. Um, learning, <laughs> being educated through, through through drug addiction. But that said, you know, a lot of you do meet a lot of people in the addiction area, or I did in New Zealand, who were nurses, or who were otherwise, or pharmacists, or who were otherwise kind of um, introduced to drugs through their work, so right. they had knowledge as well. And so, how did you get introduced to drugs? Because I mean, I, you, you, there's, there's points in your life when you're not. You were a kid at some stage, and yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a kid, and I guess I'm a bored kid, and I'm a kid that reads a lot. And um, parents have medicine cabinets, you know. Uh, that's the first, yeah. and and liquor cabinets too, of course. Yeah. And and that's that's really your first introduction is to you know what happens when you take a sleeping pill. Here's some here's some mogadon that you know dad's been prescribed. We'll see what these do. Oh, and um, you really did that? Uh, yeah, yeah. And and you know we took some, went to get, waited for the bus to go downtown, and woke up in the bus shelter at midnight. Right, without having got on the bus downtown, you know, yeah. probably just as well. Yeah, and and yeah, and, and it just and it goes on from there, and it's really in in that case, it was really boredom, boredom and curiosity, and um, and kind of the fact that we knew there was a drug culture. You know, this was the mid seventies, um, so you know the findings from the sixties had been published, and you yeah. could read, you know, in New Zealand, and you could yeah. read them, and you yeah. knew there was um, interesting things out there. If you could come across the right substance, I suppose, yeah. and it obviously accelerates to at some point. Then there's quite a big change, and all of a sudden, or, or is it gradually that you're you know you're actually injecting in drugs and you're taking opioids and yes, I, I think it depends on your culture whether you um, would think about injecting something right away. If you were surrounded by people who injected everything they took, you might get into that very quickly. Yeah. And if you were, everybody was kind of resistant to it. People, the thing about um, drug addicts resemble other criminals in the way that they have a, a very strong system of ethics. Yeah, they have a they have a kind of I won't do that kind of attitude. You know, yeah, I'm bad, but I won't do that, so I'm yeah. all right. You yeah, know, and yeah. it's the same with drug addicts. It's like, yeah, I, yeah, I take heroin, but I sniff it. I won't inject it. Yeah, you know, and and these and, until you do, until you do, and these some I I do know people who maintained their boundaries their whole lives as long as I knew them, um, but I knew many other many people who didn't, and yeah. you know, um, would have these shameful secrets. Not that they were using drugs, but they were using it in some way they said they never would or something. R like right, that. And, and so did the mu you're musicians as well. You still are. Uh, is that was that seen? part of the whole thing? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a risk. There's definitely this risk there, and it's true for entertainers, and it's true for people in hospitality as well, that you're working into the evening and you're all hyped up, you know, yeah. when other people are winding down. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it's empty, you know, the room's empty, and you're yeah. still there all wired up, and yeah, you're yeah. looking for something else to do. And, and um, or you're just so tired, you're looking for something to get you through to make it more, to make you more engaged with what you what you need to do, or um, all sorts all sorts of reasons. But there is definitely a risk in those industries, an increased risk in those industries, just from the um, 
the setup of expectations and then the kind of let down after. And, and when's there, is there a point in this where you're actually going, oh, how did I end up here or do I don't want to be doing this anymore? Is that not really something that you're thinking when you're, when you're, when you're an addict? Yeah, many people do. Many people go through that and, and they struggle, you know, with their compulsions and um, they get in touch with the part of themselves that, you know, thinks that they, you know, should be better and, um, and, and, and struggle with it. And I just never did. I just thought, um, you know, I just sort of felt entitled to do what I was doing and, yeah, yeah. and that I should be supported to do it and so forth. And, you know, I just, I, I, I just, I, 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 which is probably just as well because I don't have any willpower. I could never have done things the hard way, you know, so. Yet, yet when I look at you in, in the sort of time you put into especially uh, academic stuff and the reading that you do and the thought mm. that you put in, you actually are someone who, can, who is, has quite a lot of willpower. Yeah, I mean, I can do unpleasant things if I have to, but I don't know, just kind of like, I do these things because I enjoy them, really. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's just get into the biology of all this, and, uh, yeah. because we've talked about this quite a lot between the two of us, that some people can be exposed to what appears to be the exact same environment, take the same stuff, Yes. and something different happens for different people. What's going yes. on? Yes. Yeah, I mean... There are genetic differences. There are genetic loci that are associated with addiction. It does run in families. Um, yeah. But, but there are also, um, um, I think, environmental factors are very important. I think deprived people, people who don't get to eat properly, who are stressed, who live in mm. dirty, noisy environments and so forth, are probably far more susceptible to the rapid, rapid development of an addiction just to a substance, oh, yeah, than, than, it, yeah. than somebody that's well fed, well rested, and you yeah. know has a so- supportive social group and, yeah. and and so forth. Like you, because you read about, for example, people in in Russia. You know, they have one someone injects them with heroin once at a party, and they're hooked and they're kind of dependent from then on. And I can't imagine that happening, yeah. but I can imagine it happening to someone who is so starved, so you know, just so deprived. That yeah. that's the first time their brain worked properly, you know, right? And that sort of that sort, yeah. sort of fits in with that uh, the rodent research. Uh, surely you're familiar with that yes. idea in the twenties, where you put the the rat with the um, cocaine or heroin of the water, and they you know universally get addicted in that situation. But the same presentation of choices, but in with lots of other rats around mm-hmm. and other things to do, then they don't really get addicted. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's, that, right. that's sort of what you're getting in a human. Context. Yeah. Yes. I mean. I, I mean. I, and I think if you take the same drug that's addictive, and you could give it, you could give it to you know somebody from the ghettos who was like really not well looked after, and give it to say an all black. Yeah. At the same time, for the same amount, and there would be a real difference between the risk of dependence. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, what's the general theory about what's going on in the brain here? Um. It, well, it, that really can vary with the substances. Yeah. But we have a range of chemicals in the brain that um, make us feel good in different ways. And an important one is dopamine, because dopamine is our reward pathways. If we do anything, practically, we're doing it for the dopamine. You know, if we're yeah. doing it, if we if we want to do anything, I should say, not if we're doing anything, but if we want to do something, yeah. we want to do it for the reward. And and that's the the front loading of that reward is the dopamine, the thing that reminds us. I think with a, is associated with our memory that yes, there is a reward in this. Right. Well, I, I, I've yeah. heard someone describe that as dopamine helps focus our attention on that which we that's want. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It focuses our attention. That, that's right. And so you know, the the treatment for ADHD is a amphetamine, which is a dopamine mimic, releases dopamine and focuses the attention. You know, okay. literally, 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 that's true. Yeah. And um, the now and an interesting thing here is that. Opiates work in a different pathway, the endorphin pathway, which is um, the relief of pain and general kind of reward for, for, for some activities too, and, um, and, um, but a post-reward rather than a motivation. Yeah. And, um, but the, and, and drugs like morphine specifically work on the endorphins, but the other drugs like oxycodone also have a dopamine effect. Yeah. And these are far more addicting. As we see, they, mm-hmm. these went right through a society, went right through the USA when other opiates didn't have quite the same reach. Yeah. Um, 
And so I think you probably need to take a dopamine stimulator a little bit less often to get, you know, mm. motivated to reuse it. Uh, and so is this true for alcohol? Alcohol is, um, again, a really interesting one, and it doesn't, it's not directly related to things like dopamine, but it probably does involve all of these pathways to some extent. But um, one of the recent findings about alcohol is that um, the brain can run on the acetate that is the breakdown product of alcohol. It's a brain fuel, it's, and it's very similar to ketones. It's, it's kind of what a, you know, ketone bodies are basically dumping acetate into mm. mitochondria too. And, um, and um, what they found was that in people with alcoholism, that the, um, if they put them in ketosis, they experienced fewer, fewer cravings and they needed fewer benzodiazepines during withdrawal. So about half the amount of benzodiazepine scripts were being written for people put in ketosis. Right, so because the ketone bodies were now able to fill in for the, alcohol, for the acetate from the alcohol. Right, so that sort of points to a genetic difference in being able to supply and deal with glucose in the brain. It does, it? Yeah, 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 yes it does. And, and, and it made me wonder if... And, you know, someone would need to research this, but are there higher rates of alcoholism in, say, indigenous societies after colonialization where the, the, where the um, ancestral diet would have been ketogenic or, or had periods in ketosis more so than in higher starch societies? I mean... Okay, there's some evidence for that, is there? It, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, we could, all we've got, all there is, is you know, travellers, you know, anecdotes and so. Yeah, well, it certainly, seems that way. Well, it, seems, an, it, seems, it, it seems that way. If you think, you know, like the Scots who would have got into high starch diets later than the English have yeah. higher rates of alcoholism. The Irish have higher rates of alcoholism. Yeah. Then, but when you bring alcohol to a, to a to a new country that hasn't seen alcohol before, mm. um, and they do. Those people do pretty badly, but yes, but that may not be the not, reason. Not, not so much in Asia, but that may not be the reason. That may yeah. not that that may not be the, the the whole reason for that just being the novelty of it. Um, based on this research that shows this um, ketone acetate yeah. link and and kind of that a, um, a brain that I, I mean I mean what the alcohol research is showing at the moment is that um, the um, alcoholism impairs the brain's ability to use glucose but leaves yeah. the ability to use ketones intact, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is why you can have seizures coming off alcohol. That's, yeah. that, that's kind of what, it, what, what all, that, all that it's showing, um, but the implications of that potentially go further. Okay, well, while we're on a variety of substances, most will keep going. We've talked about yeah. opioids and uh, morphines and those sorts of things. We've yeah. talked about uh, alcohol. Uh, let's talk about, I don't know, psychedelic-type Things have you taken those? Yes, but psychedelics are not addictive. Yeah. That said, people can get addicted to NMDA ecstasy. I think yep. that there was a bit of that going on, and but that's an, also an amphetamine. It has that, you know has some amphetamine-like properties? There's probably a, a bit of a dopamine. Uh, and what, what happens in the brain when you start to take um, these these types of things? The LSD. Uh, well, magic, well, ma magic mushrooms. These, these aren't really drugs of addiction, so we should. Um, Definitely separate it. Yeah, yeah, People yeah, can yeah, overuse yeah, yeah, them. People yeah. can overuse them, but they're not really drugs of addiction, um, it's a, which is a really important kind of um, line to draw. Yeah. Um, what goes on in the brain, they're just starting to look at this, but they think that what happens on in the brain, what goes on in the brain is that it basically thinks less algorithmically. Yeah. So our brains are full of algorithms. So when I don't look at the wall, I know the wall's not moving. Because, yeah. you know, when I'm not looking directly at it and kind of checking, when I'm not yeah. checking that the wall's not moving, my brain's perfectly sure it's not moving. Right. And that's kind of an um, algorithmic process based on prior... Experience. Based right. on prior inputs, yes. And, and um, hallucinogens disconnect you from your prior exploitations in such a way as, hey, the wall's moving because I'm not doing the thing I normally do to make sure it isn't, you know? Um, that's what they, they think at the moment yeah. um, is... Is going on, so it, it loosens the set of kind of prejudices, basically, that you're born with, and you go, "Hey, did you ever think that such and such is actually such and such?" That's an example of that. Those kind of stoner insights yeah. that you know you see all the time now in popular media yeah. are examples of that um, loosening. And, and are they the, are they are they are they, are they true insights when you become sober again? Is that is that a thing? Yeah, yeah. You might 
Um, in, indeed they are, because you might take a LSD and you might look around and go, isn't it weird that everybody moves around in these tiny little metal boxes at, at dangerous speeds? Like, isn't it, how did we get like this? Right, which that's is a fair, a fair observation. Yeah, yeah, but that's a fair observation, and it's an observation that social scientists made uh, a long time ago. You know, it's an, ob- it's an observation that's in literature before, you, you know, it's, it's well, who was it um, that I was reading? It might have been Rilke or somebody like that, but it's kind of a... It's kind of a poetic insight, you know, but it's an also an insight that you could, you know, that, that, that you could have as a Marxist or something like that, you know. Yeah. So it, it, yeah, yeah, so these, these can be genuine insights if, uh, if you have... Okay, what about... if you have the machinery to process them, if you have a, the, the training to process them, you could easily turn them into... So what do you make of uh, um, Steve Jobs is famous for once uh, criticising Bill Gates for not being very imaginative because he never took enough acid when he was younger. <laughs> what do you make of that? Um, well, yeah, I mean, you know, you can definitely be imaginative without taking acid when you're younger, but there are stories, you know, there are anecdotes. I mean, a, a good one is Kerry Mullis, who yeah. invented the um, PCR, the PCR test for reading DNA, which basically makes it possible to solve crimes, you know, I mean, we, and basically... And, and to take and, and to trace, you know, to, yeah. to tell what strain of COVID someone's got. Yeah, yeah. All of this is all down to Kerry Mullis. Yeah. So the man saved probably millions of lives by now, but at the same time, he's also uh, kind of a dangerous quack who doesn't think AIDS is real and things like that. You know, yeah. so he has, so he has like, he believes whatever he wants to believe about whatever he wants to believe it about. You know, it, it, but as vid- well as being right about the PCR because of an insight that he thought came from. His oh, he he sorted days. the idea of. Yeah, he did it all in his head, and he thought he did it all in his head. Before, you know, just while he was driving, and um, worked out, hey, we can we can copy DNA. This would do it. This, this, all these things would go together. But he was taking some drugs at that point. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. Oh. But he said that if he hadn't taken LSD earlier, his brain would not have worked in that way. That he would not have had that visualisation capacity to kind of run a model in your brain. You know, it's, yep. it's like... And I, I, I know what he means, although I, would, I probably have to take acid to do it. But... Um, the thing of actually being able to run a model in, in your brain and go, here's how I think a cell works. Um, does it really... Where's that bit? What's that bit doing? What's that bit doing? And, and you've got all these kind of really visualizations of moving parts and processes that you can sort of run simulations, your ideas against simulations, um, which is probably part of the normal imaginative yep. process in science in a way, but it's kind of, there's a, um, a kind of a clarity to it and reality to it on psychedelics that's, um, is, is interesting. And, um, is, and, um, and we also should mention the use of microdose, mm. microdose psychedelics, which is when you take a dose of psychedelics, it shouldn't really be strong enough for you to notice, yeah. but does loosen up those. those uh, and have you tried anyway. that? Yes, I have. I actually enjoyed it more than larger doses. I actually thought this is the way to go. Yes. Uh, interesting. Um, um, yeah, you can just do your normal functional things, and you've just got this extra little layer of alertness. Uh, and so, what do you make of the the, the renewed? Uh, research interest in those, especially the the subclinical mm. microdoses, and that. What do you make of that? Oh, I think it's really interesting, and I think it will be it will be useful. Um, it, yeah, yeah, I think it will definitely it will definitely be useful in future. And it's really typical of science is that, um, you know, what was the quote I, I heard the other day? Um, congratulations from Bernard Shaw, and he said, "Well, congratulations." You've just reinvented something that was less thought of 50 years ago. Most people are just reinventing things from five years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And that's the case of, you know, people knew that it was important when it was invented, but then it just kind of got lost, you know? So, so it's an interesting one. I was talking to an anaesthetist the other day, and he was talking about how uh, they use ketamine mm-hmm. uh, in their practice, but he's like, there's other people, especially chronic pain specialists, have now been using you know five days of, of a dose of ketamine and it was resolving about half of the cases, like completely resolving the cases mm. of chronic pain, which is an interesting one. Yeah, yeah, um, that's interesting. Also, in, have you used ketamine? Um, I had some once and I took it and um, I, I resisted the effects. I didn't like it. It was yeah. just a physical kind of toxicity to me and I won't take it again. I, I've, been, I've been at parties where people have gotten it out and been enjoying themselves and I'm just like, no, this is not... This is not something I want to try, which is, um, which is interesting for me to have yeah. that because right. there's lots of things they could pull out that I would be, oh, right. yeah, I've always wanted to try that. But ketamine, after the experience I had of it, um, I, I just thought, no, nah, it's like not a nice, I don't think it's a nice chemical. Whatever, whatever happens when the brain is freed by it, yeah. 
that might be nice, but you know, yeah. I just don't like it as a, as a chemo. I don't like the way it made me feel. Okay. Tobacco? Um, tobacco. Oh, tobacco is, is really fascinating. So I used to smoke. I used to chain smoke because when you are drinking or when you're on amphetamines or opiates, it kind of goes part with of the, it. Part you know, of the it, it kind of goes with it. It kind of intensifies, intensifies whatever, you know, the, the concentration, the focus of your brain, I suppose. And um, But I would never smoke at other times. So I would chain smoke. But then if I was... Um, um, not really out of it I'd be like oh this is disgusting I don't want to smoke another cigarette so I never became addicted even though I had a really high you know I, I could smoke 20 you, you, a day I could smoke 20 a day but I was never a nicotine addict and but, really, but you were but you were a heroin addict yeah, yeah an yeah, opioid yeah, addict yeah, 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 yeah yes and I just never got an addiction I never got an addiction for for smoking um, nicotine was something I would do um, for a reason and um, even if I was chain smoking I was chain smoking for a reason and I'd stop when that reason went away and apparently about 20% of people have that added, that you know that they can't get addicted to nicotine physically but they usually don't smoke <laughs> yeah right they usually, these people usually don't smoke yeah um, um, but yeah but nicotine's an interesting one again because um, that's about kind of people get addicted to tobacco in the first place often because their brain functions better on it right as they do with coffee you know as, as they do with caffeine they, they get addiction addicted because their brain functions better on it and there's not a lot of evidence that it would be hugely harmful if it wasn't for its carcinogenic effect kind of topical carcinogenic effect of nicotine and the other things in cigarettes cannabis is, mm. is, is there any addictive Cannabis, in your experience, mm, is it addictive? Well, yeah, people definitely have overuse. What we call, what you call, an overuse syndrome, where they're compelled to use more than they should. And um, even I suffer from that sometimes. I'm like, why did I have that extra joint? It's like I didn't need it, you know. And it's it, it's like that is you know part of an addiction syndrome is that kind of promptness to overuse. But um, does it cause withdrawals when you stop using it? Is it um, maybe if you use enough? But they come out very slowly. They they are so. I, I had a friend once who experimented on this with animals. He got a um, he got some animals highly dependent on THC, or on cannabis. I can't remember which, but but something with THC in it. And he, he got them you know highly saturated with it anyway. So if it was addictive, they should be addictive addicted. And then he gave them a um, he gave them a cannabis antagonist to abruptly cut the effect of the cannabis because. Yeah. Normally, it's going to be released from your fat cells when you stop, and so it'll be going on for a while, mm. you know. And 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 he found that the animals, when it was abruptly, when the action of it was they were used to was abruptly blocked, went into wet dog shakes yeah. and you know, kind of whole body shiver, which is a symptom of withdrawal. opioid withdrawal. Yeah, yeah. and op- and withdrawal from benzodiazepines, yeah. I think, and and barbiturates. So there was a depressive withdrawal syndrome going on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's potentially addictive. But that said, um, when I do volunteer in um, in-house detoxification services, I never see people who are, need to be um, in a detox centre for a cannabis. Right, but there's thing. plenty of other things. Yeah, that yeah, are yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's um, I guess, probably because they're still functional or something. But, it's, yeah. um, I mean, I do know people who I would say definitely, yeah, they're addicted to cannabis. Um, but... Um, but you know, it's 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 a grey area. Um, okay. What what about these sort of tranquilizing sedative type classes of stuff? I mean, because when you you're not in the drug scene, t- taking that s- sounds sort of weird. Yeah. Um, so, well, yeah. Um, benzodiazepines, which are the main drug of abuse since barbiturates became illegal, and and barbiturates, are, I've had barbiturates, and they're such a bizarre drug to have become really popular and it's kind of easy to understand why lifespans were shorter in in the earlier 20th century when everyone was being given these things to sleep with because they're directly toxic and they 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 interfere with your um mitochondrial function you know and and they're just sort of crudely putting everything to sleep in your body not just your nerves but you know the whole every cell potentially can die and and um and it's just ridiculous for medical science to think that this this was the way to do anything, you know. I mean, uh, and um, and and you know, are like people so taking many this famous to, to, people died because of them. Though. But are people taking these 
sort of anti-stimulants, I guess, the, the exact opposite to mm. to cover up pain and that sort of thing. Is that a thing? Yeah. Just escape from that? Well, they, you're forgetting. Yeah. So if you've got something to forget, you know, that you can forget it. But, yeah. of course, it, there's lots of dangers in that. If you forget some traumatic thing that happened to you, it could happen again. Yeah. You know, that's... That's kind of why, yeah. Why you have these memories that don't go away is because you know you you needed to avoid that thing, and so and so people can take benzos. Traumatized people can take benzos, and their their trauma can be repeated, you know, because they they're not aware. And um, and and um, so as a painkiller, you know, if you take it as a painkiller for your broken leg, you might fall over and break your arm, you know. Yeah. And and so um, uh, um. But the benzos were, you know, developed as kind of the safe alternative to the barbiturates. They are hard. They only knock out the, the, you know, they only they only act on nerve cells. They are um, very hard to overdose on by themselves. Yeah. And um, but they are very addictive. But I um, I was actually addicted to them when I started taking the supplements, and I came off them very quickly. I was on 40 milligrams of Valium a day. I had been for years, and that would normally have made me really quite sick if I stopped taking them. But um, when I started taking sort of, um, you know, like glutathione pathway enhancers, enhancing antioxidants like N-acetylcysteine and selenium and things like that, um, I just thought, oh, no, I don't like this. I don't like the ritual of having to get them, yeah. really. Not didn't really hate the drug. I just hated the kind of ritual of being dependent on people for it. And um, I um, just stopped taking it, and I had a couple of nights without sleep, but I actually enjoyed them, and I was actually quite happy in my body, happy yep. in my body and mind while it went on, and which would never have been the case before. So I think there's a, an oxidative stress thing there going on with the addiction. So let's just explore that whole uh, nutrients bit, because I mean by... If you were doing that now, you'd be an early adopter, but you did this 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and how, how, did you, how, did you, how did you even decide, maybe I need to take some nutrients here? Um, well, I was taking them for my liver. Yeah. So I wasn't doing it for my brain or for my addiction. I thought I'd just go on using the drugs. I thought that that wasn't you know, negotiable. Yeah. Um, so that just happened by accident. I was taking um, basically the supplements that were being mentioned and I mentioned the medical textbooks too as being protective of the liver, which are because you had hepatitis C. Yeah, and because that, I had hepatitis C and fatty liver, and I was getting you know, worse and worse. Um, and and they turned that around fairly quickly, but um, about a couple of weeks. But they also relieved a lot of my drug habits. So I gave up the benzos quite easily. I gave up amphetamines. Just decided I wasn't enjoying them anymore. Just you know, stopped taking them as often then stopped taking them all together and I also cut down my cannabis consumption from as much as I could get to you know just the tiny amount that it actually takes to get high because it doesn't you know there's no need to use huge amounts of cannabis that is kind of a you know a, a, um, a kind of an overuse thing usually and um, and save myself a lot of money in the process and um, oh, and were you surprised about this whole effect were you, what were you thinking at yes, the time yes 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 because I, I mean I was a person who experimented with vitamins I knew for example that um, a large dose of ascorbic acid and niacin can bring someone down from a bad psychedelic trip for example well, this is sort of a vitamin C kind of vitamin a, B type yeah yeah that, that's kind of reasonably well known and reasonably well researched but and so I used to take lots of vitamin C but it never did anything except rot my teeth yeah <laughs> it was actually the wrong yeah you know, it was just the wrong antioxidant for what I wanted yeah. I mean maybe it protected me you know I made it as long as I did so maybe it did something yeah but um but up to that point, up to that point, the supplements I'd been to, I had been taking supplements, but they weren't the ones that were helping. They right. the, the and right and then you, you transitioned off just thinking about the supplements into more wider dietary considerations. Yeah, at some point I found, I, re, I realised that I didn't need to take as many supplements if I didn't eat carbs, or, you know, if I, you know, got, got the processed carbs right down, and I didn't need to take as many supplements if I ate saturated animal fats instead of oils as well that yep. was a big one um, that, that, that really changed sort of how my digestion worked and how um, and, and, and how my brain worked as well um, and um, because you know we got this whole omega 3, 6 balance thing going on yep. as well whereas we have these diets very high in omega 6 and high in unsaturated fat other unsaturated fat and they suppress the 
ability to make DHA and EPA, which you need for good cognitive functioning, and um, and and um, and the omega six is the precursor of the natural cannabinoids. Yeah. Anandamide, anandamide, and two AEG. I think the second one is, and these are. Um, so cannabis is something that works on the same receptors as those. Mm. So the fact that our society is, you know, drenched in cannabis now is probably a consequence of the fact it was being drenched in oil for so long. I mean, <laughs> I mean you know, that's that's a yeah, reasonable right. connection that yeah, a lot yeah, of people yeah, yeah, that's made. A reasonable um, you, you know, you can make a really good argument for that, and that's yeah. why that's why cannabis is even associated with health benefits and epidemiology because it's done regulating the sensitivity to the food supply. Yeah. yeah. Hey, uh, you might not want to answer this question, so. I just want to ask it. <laughs> uh, there's just one thing that I wonder for a long time because you know when I I've known you for quite a long time. You're quite a gentle sort of fellow, and actually you're quite a um, as far as sort of thinking about society. Um, you're quite a thinker on how societies function in that. But yet when you're a drug addict, you're you by by definition, you're going to be more closely mm. connected with the world of crime and stuff. How does yes. that? What is yes. it? What, yes. what, yes. yeah, what, what yeah, were you thinking about at that time? And what? What, you're kind what of do a, you make of all that? Well, I mean, I, I think my social awareness, that, such as I had when I was young, was just that rebellious social awareness that um, is kind of selfish and grandstanding. You know, it's yeah. all it's all. It's really just a, you know attention seeking, virtue signaling, all that stuff. You know, yeah. and and. Um, it's my my um my great awakening um, socially was when I went to jail. Yeah. Because I'd always been, oh fuck the system, you know, this mm. and that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean obviously I had more complex thoughts than that, but I kinda of went yeah, along yeah, that yeah, yeah. went along with that kind of stuff, you know, the system's hopelessly corrupt, you might as well just rip it off. Yeah. Basically is what I thought. And then I went to jail and I thought I was being quite well looked after. Yeah. And that these other people who really didn't deserve to be well looked after <laughs> were also being well looked after. You know, they were reasonably safe in prison. Yeah. And um, what, what, I just what, sort of thought, like, a system that can manage this isn't so bad, you know. Well, the, 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 the first time I ever heard of you, um, I hadn't met you, but I... I Googled you up and I found a uh, Radio New Zealand interview with you with, I think it was Kim Hill. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a sort of Saturday morning one talking about your music days. And and the thing that sticks in my mind most from what you said was that, oh, yes, yes, I, I think you can judge the quality of a society on how it treats its prisoners. And frankly, I was very well treated. I decided we were in a very well-functioning society. Remember saying something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. yeah well, you know, well enough. And I know today it's not true for every prisoner, but yeah. you know, I was in a low-security jail, so there was more resources. Yeah. Less resources had to be spent kept keeping us locked up than yeah. you know, keeping us restrained and more yeah. resources yeah. could be spent on other, other aspects of our well-being. But... Um, but nonetheless, that was an insight, and it kind of got me into, um, you know, like um, kind of considering kind of the conservative viewpoint, yeah. you know, the status quo viewpoint, and yeah. kind of the evolution of of the systems that, that that we have, and that later allowed me to kind of um, relook at everything from kind of a more Marxist sort of left wing viewpoint as well. Well, you, well, you, well, you do have you do that. you do have. Ability to look at things from a lot of different points of view. I guess that's an interesting thing about you. Yeah, but yeah, and I think that people can be right coming from you know pe- people can be right and constructive about things and have the sort of help. People can help other people yeah. regardless of where they stand. You know, if they um, if you know if they have the ability and they use it and um, and frame it in different ways and. Um, you, you know, it's kind of like in our society, everyone contributes. You know, mm. even you know, even the rich person, if they pay taxes, you know, is contributing through their taxes or mm. whatever, or through charity or whatever. Everybody, everybody's contributing in some way, and usually they're contributing in some way that kind of feeds back a little bit to them. You know, yep. it's, it, yep. you know, maybe just in credit or maybe you know, social credit of some sort. But you, you know, like. Very few things are completely altruistic, but um, in, in in a functioning society, um, it's not just kind of people who see things one way taking charge of everything and running it their way. That doesn't that's not very sustainable, you know, yeah, yeah. and doesn't really reflect 
it doesn't really reflect kind of the masses yeah. because the masses believe all sorts of things and often at the same time, mm. you know. They often believe contradictory ideas at the same time and, and, and um, there's only a few people who have kind of highly constrained um, consistent viewpoints, really. Yeah, yeah. Most people aren't consistent and shouldn't have to be. Shouldn't yeah. have to be. Should yeah. be. You know, dealt with as they are. Yeah. So... If you're meeting a younger version of you, or actually you're just you are meeting younger people who have, well, hang on. Before we even explore this, well, I just want to I just want to discuss the difference between misusing a substance and being addicted to a substance. So just sort me out there. I think it is really important to always define what you mean by addiction to a substance because it is such a a kind of a, um, you know, pathologizing. It's easy to pathologize people who do things we don't like. Yeah. And you see stuff on the internet all the time as like how to spot a narcissist or whatever. And yeah. it's like, nah, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, it's like, why are you doing that? That's kind of, um, you, you know, you're seeing things in that way. And there is a, you know, there is a, there is a, you know, a diagnosis of narcissism, but to kind of be out there, you know, looking for it, and, you know, it's yeah, kind of, yeah. you know, you, you know, and and so we're, it's, you're just probably just pathologizing someone who's annoyed you, yeah. really, you know, yeah. and um, and and we do this all, we do this all the time, and and addiction is an easy way to because if you call someone an addict, you are insulting their hedonic values, mm. you're insulting the things that they think are pleasurable, yeah, um, essentially, and they may be in addicts, they may be, you know, over. They may be overcommitted to the things that they think yeah. are pleasurable, or they may be using them in a way that causes harm, but it doesn't mean yes. they're a, a, an addict. Yes, yes, but it can easily be used as an insult. It yeah. can easily be used to diminish someone's experience and to diminish someone's values. Yeah. Um, so you've got you, you have to be aware of that. So to define addiction is, uh, um, you know, there's there's physical dependency. It's obviously physical dependency. But physical dependency may not um, be a consequence of an addiction. So, for yeah. example, if you have type 1 diabetes, you are physically dependent on insulin. Yeah. You've never addi- become addicted to it. No, because there's also the um, notion of tolerance, sense, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyway, yeah. you can develop a tolerance you know, as well, yeah. insulin resistance. You yeah. know, all the, all oh, this that's can, true. All this, can yeah. go, all this can go on. So, it's really a question of motivation. You know, you yeah. don't have a choice. And... and um, and other people who people who don't need it aren't getting addicted to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so that tells you it's not really addictive. Yeah, and, uh, you know, food. You know, addiction. Oh, so can, yeah, can, we can go can, into that can, later. Can, well, but, um, well, let's let's go into that now. No, can, no, can, let's no, let's keep these definitions. Okay, these definitions. Okay. Are, it's important to have these definitions clear. And uh, so, and the other, but, but the other things that make an addiction. Uh, properties that make an addiction are the things of obsession and compulsion. Yeah. If you think of it like an obsessive compulsive disorder, and because it's and a so form you're, of you're self-harm, d- it's uh, a form of self-harm which is an obsessive compulsive disorder. So, so you'll go and do the activity even though you know that it's causing... Yes, you harm. feel compelled to do it. At, regardless and, of the consequences. And you obsess about it when you don't need it. Even when you don't need it, you might obsess about it. So you might obsess about you know how much how many pills you've got left or something like that. And yeah. you're going over it in your mind. Or how to, you might be obsessing about um, how to get more or whatever. Um, you, or you may be You'll obsessing be worried about that someone's, someone's, ro- someone's going to punch it or something. Or, or Yes, and, and, and people on methadone often, um, or on you know, drug, where they're getting a drug from a doctor, often obsess about their relationship with the authority mm. and obsess about, you know, and, and, and I've seen people obsess about the misuse of drugs act you know like yeah. absolutely sort of conspiracy theory obsessives about it yeah. rather than just people who are kind of you know aware of what it means you know yeah, yeah. and 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 so this this property of obsession is obsession and compulsion are, are really really the things i think that define addiction because they're the things that tie you to the object you're tied to the object not just by your physical need for it, which is pretty low with some substances, really. But yeah. um, you're tied to it by the fact that you keep thinking about it, but, uh, and by the fact that it's if it's there, you can't say no, which is the compulsion. And so the word dependence means a similar thing, does it? Yeah, yeah, you're depending on it. Yeah, you, you're depending on it. That's all, that's the physical part of the addiction, but it's also the psychological thing. So, um, so for example, if I, you know, I. Being an alcoholic, I had to stop because of the hep C, so that was something that went away sort of long ago. I was just couldn't touch alcohol at all. So, yeah. um, but I, I drink now. But um, how I know I'm not not an alcoholic is basically if I can't drink because I'm busy doing something, 
I don't feel different. It doesn't kind of, I'm not off my game. Mm. because I, And the same with cannabis. Like, I like having it. But if I'm do working for several days and I can't have any for several days, um, I'm not off my game because of that. It's not causing me distress and it's not, it's not affecting my performance. So, so there's an interesting thing there that came up, which is because there's some view around addictions, especially alcoholism, that, that once you're an alcoholic, you're, you're never not an alcoholic. Mm. And so then any sort of moderation at any point past that is just impossible, yeah. whereas what you've that's described true. is not that. Well, that's actually true, but I went through 20 years of abstinence, and 20 years of abstinence was long enough. Right. You know, most people don't try 20 years of abstinence. Okay, right. try 20 years of abstinence, and, you know, being healthier and being you know, eating better and doing all those things, getting your health back completely and not thinking about drinking even... And then have a drink and see if it turns into an alcoholic. Well, well it's I mean, quite a big. It's probably it's quite don't. A, it's probably, quite, it's, I'll probably still don't. You know, but it's quite but, a big um, call though, isn't it? After yeah, twenty years, you yeah, know, yeah. just in case. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, don't. Yeah, yeah. No, don't do that. Don't do that. But as a thought experiment. Yeah. As a thought experiment, would you necessarily go to the same place yeah. right away, or or even um, get into a pattern where you did? Because I drink. If I drink too much now. So, you know, I do drink more than I should, more often than I should, but every time I do, I don't enjoy it, and I don't want to do it again. No, because there's... I don't want to do well, it again, yeah. Yeah, there's like, sort even of... at the time, I just go, this is a bit yuck, really. That extra wine was a bit yuck. Yeah. I never thought that when I was an alcoholic. Yeah, ever. right. So that's yeah. just a... Uh, uh, I never I, finish the bottle. I never drink all everyone else's booze, you know, once I go to bed or something like that. Which you, which you would have done that one Which point. I would have done, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, could, I could never do that anymore. Yeah. Um, I always thought that was as you get older that you just think, oh well, I'm going to be hungover if I do this. What's the point? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah, that's not being an alcoholic though. I mean, I think, yeah. uh, um, but you know, alcohol. There's different types yeah. of alcohol overuse, and yeah. and uh, there's binge drinking is, is is a um is is you know a more common pattern. Like true alcoholism is relatively rare. It's not you know it's obviously lots of people out there have it, but considering how much alcohol we're exposed to, I think complete and utter absence so they can alcohol st- dependence is relatively rare. Right, they can stop. Drinking they can stop drinking if they want, but if they start common. having a wine at five, they'll drink the whole bottle at least. Yes, um, and go and out to get more before the pub starts. Yeah, yeah. And um, if they have a lot in the house, they just drink it all. Like, and I mean all. Yeah. 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 That would be. That, that would be. Um, That's a more normal sort of sign of modern alcoholism, is it? Yeah. 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 Um, but. Um, but you know, there's other, there's various, various ways in which it can manifest, and, and yeah. All right, we'll get onto the food addiction in a sec, but mm-hmm. we want to go back to that that uh, question about the you meet the younger George. Were you actually um, are volunteering and you're meeting people who uh, have a dependence of one way or the other? What, what, what's your communication? Then what's the style? What works? What no. doesn't work? What works? What doesn't work? Like, and what would you say? First of all, what would you say to the younger self if you came across that? Now, which is just a thought experiment, right? It's sort of not real, obviously. Ah, really, nothing. Like uh, you know, I mean, I don't, you know, I, I don't try to discourage young people from using drugs. I just um, don't encourage them. You yeah. know, <laughs> I, I don't really think there's any message necessarily that um, that gets across. And except except that if you can kind of make something seem uncool, if you, yeah. if you think something's you know. That's not a good choice, and you can make it seem uncool, or you know, tell some story of some actually really stupid uncool thing someone did on that substance or something like that. I think that's I think that's valuable. I think I, I definitely think young people especially are motivated by what they think is cool. But they're not motivated by the harm. Not really. No, I mean some people more some people more than others. You know, some people experiment with drugs, but they're all still very careful and they're still very kind of anxious. And they're more worried about, about the it. acute harm, are they? Um, well, you don't want to you know jump yeah, off a bridge or drive your car into a wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, did, mean, you, did you ever think about long term harm? Did I ever think about long term harm? No, not really. Yeah. Not really. I mean, you kind of think you're bulletproof, or you kind of think you'll get through it, or you just kind of think you've got no choice, and you know, there's a lot of fatalism goes on. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, I wish I could come up with something. I mean, I mean, I think the best thing I ever did as a young person using drugs was to eat. Like, I knew that if I took a drug that stopped me from eating, that I had to eat well when mm. I ate. I had to eat, you know, I would eat, like, steak and potatoes and three-veg type, type of meal, whereas normally I would just be living on sandwiches or whatever if I hadn't been able to eat for a while because I was 
on, on speed or something like that, I would make sure I ate. And, and the people that didn't do that often ended up in the loony bin, you know, they'd have psychotic episodes or things like that. So, yeah. so I, just, I would just kind of make myself eat. And I think that's kind of the, um, the important thing because you are spending your money on drugs instead of food. You are you know, limiting your ability to prepare food and things like that and your appetite. And so if you focus on that, you're preventing one of the ways in which you slide downhill. Uh, do you move quickly away from uh, and just associate with people who are doing the same thing? Do you have friends and family that are going, "Hey, you know, George, mm. you know, this isn't really working out that well, or something"? Or yeah, yeah, you don't really want to be around people that you know you're kind of annoying in that way. Yeah, um, you know that you're distressing. You don't really want to be around people who are distressed by what you're doing, so mm. you do kind mm. of drift away from them. Um, um, you know, towards people who are. Kind of more, you know, more okay with that. Um, well, that's a really interesting way of putting it. I think only you would could say that, right? It's like the reason to not associate was not to the, them not to hassle you. It's you don't want to distress them. Yeah, well, yeah. that's a hassle. It's a real hassle <laughs> being around someone that you're distressing. Uh, okay, you know? that's true. Okay, <laughs> they're a real bring down. They're a real bring down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, so we get onto that food, shall we? Um, yeah, yes. I mean, is that a thing? Food addiction is pretty um, controversial, right? Well, I think so. I think so. And the reason I think so is because I've been addicted to drugs and I've been addicted to food. Yeah. And, and I can tell the same things were going on in my brain, that I was rationalizing. So rationalizing is when you think, well, I need to take this because, you know, even if I don't have pain now, I, did have, I do have chronic pain or whatever. You know, yeah. or, or I need to take this because I need to get a tolerance to it so I'm not so you know, affected by it or whatever. Yeah. You, know, you rationalize in a million different ways to justify your, your wrong decisions about drugs. And a food addiction was the same, and I, especially with um, bread. You know, I've um, seemed to be gluten sensitive, um, I suppose borderline celiac because of possibly because of the virus, yeah. to the virus, but um, probably not true celiac. But um, but um, you know, bread um, definitely hurts my digestive system. And but I would keep eating it. I would yeah. keep eating it, and I would justify it by a very similar series of rationalisations to the ones that I would construct around around benzodiazepines or um, opioids. Yeah, and. Um, and you know, gluten is what's called an exorphin. That it has a chemical similar. The protein structure has a chemical similarity to endorphins. Oh, yeah, I had read that William Davis's idea of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it's you know, it's what it can do. Who knows? You know, how how relevant that is. Who knows? But um, there are different exorphins in dairy, in bread, and in. Um, and in um, you know wheat and corn is another one, um, and um, but then you're also combining them with that, say a high amount of omega six fatty acids, which are the precursors for cannabinoids. So yep. you also have a, a pathway there, and then you have sugar releasing dopamine. Yeah. And um, there's an effect of fructose, and then you have um, the serotonin absorption enhancing effect of glucose as well. So when you have some kind of um, breaded, deep fried piece of carbohydrate food and chase it down with a soft drink, you're really touching all the things yeah, that right. drugs yeah. that, that the addictive drugs touch. And whether you're touching them you know, as strongly as the addictive drugs, well, you've got this combination of things that is um, that, that, that definitely can tr- trigger the uh, obsessive compulsive. Well, I guess, I guess the if you think about some of the ideas of some neurotransmitters like dopamine or, and, you know, I guess mm. to an extent serotonin, um, we talked about, you know, focusing your attention, a sort of reward pathway mm. because motivation was needed to stay alive in the savannah, yeah. um, then it seems to me that when we're talking about some of the effects of mm. drugs, well, they, they're just synthetic substances or, or unusual natural substances that have that effect. Yeah. I guess um, modern ultra-processed food falls into that, Category. No, uh, this yeah, is food that doesn't resemble how I normal think it food does, operates, and it's been designed to. You know, yeah. people have tested it for mm. Moorishness. You yeah. know, it's been it's been it's been road tested. Oh, this for is like the idea of the bl- like, bliss point and these sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just like you know, just like if you were designing a drug to addict people, you'd do the same thing. So, so, um, uh, but I, 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 I do think it's valid. I think physical dependence. Mm, you know, I mean. There's yeah, no DDTs and you know uh, seizures and stuff from sugar withdrawal. 
No, but but, but no, there isn't. There isn't, and physical, and you know, you need food to live anyway. So we're all mm. physically dependent on calories anyway. Yeah. Um, so. Um, physical withdrawals, not necessarily, but physical withdrawals aren't really part of a lot of addictive drug, you know, mm. use either. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not necessarily something that you're going to get from a, a life-threatening drug addiction. You're not necessarily going to be physically dependent on that drug. Um, you don't need that to be to 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 call it an addiction. I don't think the, the word addict comes from the old word. Um, I think it means sort of spoken for literally, and it's and and it's uh, means a slave. You know, right, okay. It literally means slavery. Yeah, okay, it okay. literally means slavery. So if you're a slave to the substance, like literally that you know, like you you don't own your free will, something else owns it. Um you, you know, I think I, I think, you know, that addiction is, is a reasonable word to use and um and and why it's reasonable to use it at times about other behaviours that have no substance connection because you know what they have in common is, I suppose, the rewards and things like that. Yeah. Hey, so on that, just thinking about the history and words and stuff. So, how far back does any evidence of of drug use and or addiction go? Do you know anything about that? Um, drug use goes way back to the very first civilizations, the first the, the Scythians and the Babylonians and people like that. You'll find cannabis seed heads and opium poppy heads. Um, in 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 those sites and um, and you know we know that you know the the priests often got out of it on something or other and the common people would have, you know had medicines but also things you know just to make their lives seem better I, I would think but and there's sort of the idea that that you know the arawaska type thing and still you know mm-hmm. in South America or uh, there's still Oh, is, the, is it uh, in Papua New Guinea that use the beetle yeah, nut? Yeah, yeah, and they, yeah. Have a, they have a strong carver in Papua New Guinea too. Yes, so yeah, and, and, um, yeah, and across yeah, the Pacific Yeah, lines. so there's, um, I mean, there's practically no civilization that doesn't have a host in general, hasn't had an intoxicant of some kind. But, um, but the question of addiction is a really interesting one because no, we don't have historical records of addiction, and I don't think, and um, we do, you know. Hist- Overuse and overindulgence, yeah, indulgence, yes, but addiction. And I'll give you an example of this. So the the book that kind of introduced the world really to opium addiction as a kind of a hedonistic thing was Confessions of an English Opium. Oh yes, I'm familiar with that. By Thomas De Quincey. Yeah. And Thomas De Quincey sums up the effect of opium in two chapters: the pleasures of opium and the pains of opium. Mm. The pleasures of opium, we can imagine, you know, it's the good, the good days. The yeah. pains of opium doesn't mention withdrawal. Yeah, it, it's just about what happens when you take too much. How unpleasant it is to take too much, and um, because Quincy believed that what we would call his withdrawal symptoms were just the illness that he was taking the medicine for in the first place. They were just the reason he had taken it in the first place. Interestingly, the reason he had taken it in the first place was that he was starving. He was in London, he had no money, yeah. he was living on scraps of bread, you know. He was he was literally starving and when he discovered opium. And um and that is, you know, the cause of the illness that he thinks that he is still you know, still correcting and I think there's sort of a lesson in there from my experience that's kind of um yeah. That 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 kind of has meaning, but also how easy it was to not know about addiction mm. in the past. How easy it was um, to not, or, or you know, I mean, they knew about addiction. They knew people were addicted to the drug, but they didn't know about the withdrawal syndrome. And how easy it was not to know about the withdrawal syndrome because there was just so many illnesses around. You could just say, well, that's just the the yeah. ague, or the, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the you know you know that's just malaria or whatever, you know, yeah. or starvation. Yeah. There's an interesting story about that confessions of an English opium eater. I, I first heard a book about the book in 1993, where this professor Michael Davison, who was my PhD supervisor, referred it to me. Um, he felt that he, he, in the book, he, he he when he's on the opium, he has these insights and he'll write them down. One like igamous, mm. bigamous man as a polygamist or something. It sounds yeah, great at the time. That's the nitrous oxide one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, yeah anyway, yeah. anyway, he's and then he, he's not stoned, and he's like, "Well, this is just rubbish." And my PhD super fine. It's like I think you're writing when I'm sober is rubbish. Um, it's possible if I was stoned that I'd think it would be all right, but 
yeah. <laughs> so that was his way of giving me yeah, the book yeah, to read to, to sort of make the point that, that my writing was terrible. Yeah, yeah so. Yeah. Another fun fact. I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, De Quincey did draw lots of inspiration from yeah. his dreams, and yeah. um, and and um, we have um, Coleridge. Coleridge wrote um, Kubla Khan yeah. um, in an opium dream, yeah. and but it's not much. Not much. It's, it's not a lot to get back from such an investment, probably. Yeah. Um, and you know, Coleridge spent most of his life you know, with um, what do they call it? You know, writer's block. Because of directly because of taking too much yeah. opium, so I, I want to finish up talking about uh, the sort of disease model, or sort of social model, or a criminal model, a punitive model around drug misuse. And at the moment, we have a, a sort of punitive criminal type mm. model. Yeah, it's it's soft, it is softening to a so we talk about a, a therapeutic model. But yeah. then, where does the idea of a disease model fit in? Because that's sort of a weird one, isn't it? Yeah. In between, what do you make of all that? Discussion? No, I, I think the disease model is valid. The the brain disease of addiction is how I conceive of it. So yeah. the substance gets into your brain cells and it basically jacks them, it hacks them. Yeah. It hacks your brain cells so you can only sign in using the drug. You know, mm. it, 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 it's... A, and, <laughs> okay, and, okay, so they're going to hex your brain cells so you can only sign in using yeah, the drug. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And, um, and it's... Um, it's um, it does this by... St- st- stripping out nutrients would be too kind of crude, but it's kind of... St- um, Affecting the nutrient pathways in such a way as they're not being used effectively. Right, and you do need nutrients to build, constantly build neurotransmitters. Yeah, 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 to make dopamine, to make your own dopamine, to make your own serotonin, and to balance them, and for the whole, and for all the cascades that enable those things to work normally, you need um, constant metabolism of the substrates, constant conversion of chemicals that requires. All the mineral, all the essential minerals and vitamins, and that's uh, Julia Rutledge's argument yes, for the effect of yeah, her, her yes. high doses. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. So Julia Rutledge makes the case very well for why you need, you know, a, a, a broad spectrum of nutrients. Yeah. Um, to um, kind of um, allow these nutrients, uh, allow you know, serotonin, dopamine, yada yada, to go to function normally. In um, this is mental disorders, quite apart from addiction. Yeah. This is true of addiction as well, that you need all these things and the stimulation of the drug has shifted, you know, it's upregulated some enzyme that's then grabbed the nutrients. Yeah. So the nutrients are now bound up with a different protein um, mm. and, and not as available necessarily yeah. to, even assuming that you're still eating normally and that. But, but, uh, but I think the main thing is you forget to eat properly. You don't get enough protein. You don't get enough vitamins and minerals. You grab a sandwich when you can. Yeah. You know, you grab, you know, you get your energy from lower quality foods and less of them um, or, or more of them as the case may be. You yeah. know, it's, it could go either way. Um, and in the case of alcohol, alcohol is a source of calories. It displaces food in the diet. Yeah. Interestingly, it displaces carbohydrate first. Yeah. Um, and... Um, so any vitamins that you might be getting with those foods, you know, your 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 window for um, eating essential nutrients, protein and food supplying essential nutrients, is sort of shrinking as alcohol fills up the rest of the space. Yeah. And so you end up vitamin deficient, and this doesn't help you, you know, deal with you, you know, um, be autonomous around the substance. Hey, so. One thing we mentioned to start with, I've forgotten about, which I really wanted to talk about, was these sort of comorbidities that ah, happen. Yes. Other things, yes. Uh, and then you know we started talking about this, and I started mentioning you know burns because George felt that he burned himself a fair bit, and he goes, "Oh yeah, it wasn't just the burns. Sometimes I would set the bed on fire." And uh, yeah. let's explore some I mean, of that, and then get into the more. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, this is right. If you are trying to help someone with a substance abuse issue, you might actually be dealing with um, uh, a supposed not comorbidities so much as consequences of that. And, and in an injecting drug addict, these will be things like abscesses, tooth decay, mm. and, and in a someone taking you know, benzodiazepines, it could be injuries, it could be um, you know, you know, assault, violence, and so forth that they're not aware of. It could be, um, and it could be burns, it could be um, 
you know, you know, and there's a fire risk, you know, when you're taking sleeping pills, if you also smoke, you know, um, and that, that sort of thing, <laughs> yeah, or, or, that, that, or that, okay, you, had, you hadn't thought of that. That is quite a serious thing, isn't it? Yeah, yes, yeah. Uh, yes. Um, so, and, and alcohol, there is alcoholic liver disease, there is um, thiamine deficiency and damage to the nervous system, um, and, um, and the possibility of seizures when you no longer have the substance. Um, so there's a, a range of physical um, dangers and and things that you may need to take care of. So you know, for example, to help somebody with um, long-term opioid use or amphetamine use, you may have to take care of their dental problems to give them a you know a, mm. a, a, um, a sort of a chance at a normal life afterwards. Um, there, there are um, there are factors like this. Like I remember, you know, like a, I you know bought some food and I was walking out of the out of the um, out of the um, I was walking out of the supermarket and there was a homeless guy on the pavement. And I was just like, oh, look, I've got this extra sausage here. Do you want it? I've got, you know, and, and, um, and chorizo. And um, he's like, yeah, but I've got no teeth, man. And I said, like, don't worry, neither have I. That's why I buy these. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's, he's younger than me. You know? yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. So, so that sort of thing is, um, is, is, is part and parcel of it that you really have to consider. It's not all in the mind, you know. I mean, I mean, you know, we've established that it's not all in the mind, yeah. but, but it's also it's n- the, the the health problem is not restricted to being, a, a, you know, addicted to the substance. And also, you have um, you know, low grade inflammation yeah. is commonly is a, is you know, low grade immune activation from all the foreign uh, material. Uh, that's uh, and so then you're, the you're prone to other chronic diseases as well, right? Then well, yes, you can catch them. Things like hepatitis C, you can yeah. catch, but um, um, you know, alcohol and um, tobacco increase your risk for cancer. Um, so, and life expectancy. And, and cannabis smoking probably increases the risk for em- emphysema, which is a genetically, yeah. um, it's kind of a genetically determined risk. But I, I would say, you know, it probably doesn't cause lung cancer, but it, mm. it probably does aggravate emphysema if you're uh, yeah. if you're prone to it. And, and, and um, premature death. It's just, you're just going to shorten your life, right? Yes, with on, most, on average. Yeah, yeah, yes, with most of these things. I'm not necessarily with cannabis unless you're, you know, smoking it with tobacco or you, you know, and but but say you know oral use of cannabis probably doesn't shorten your life at all. Um, um, some of these things, it's but it's it it, it is hard to say. But you you certainly you just. Um, Incurring all these risks of shortening your life. Yeah, I suppose, right. As far as how you could put it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what, did, um, I think William Burroughs put it well. He was talking about, you know, everyone's like, Keith Richards seems to be immortal. And he said, no, he's not immortal. Junk doesn't make you immortal, it just makes you improbable. Yeah. So it just lowers the probability that you will be a certain age. So yeah. when you reach that age, you seem to be immortal. But, right. Yeah, yeah, right. That's a good way of actually thinking yeah. about everything, is it? Life, yeah. the universe, and everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. All right. Thanks, George. Thank you. Yeah, lots of good and interesting reading for me. You've been listening to Prevention is Cure, brought to you by Precure.com, with me, Professor Grant Schofield. At Precure, we're developing a way to help medicine help change the world. We're filling that gap. We're helping train health coaches and mental health coaches. We're bringing short but effective behavior change programs over 29 days to you to help you learn for yourself and help others as well be healthier. We're trying to create a community of like-minded people, people like you who want to use the latest science and practice to change lives for the better. Join us at precure.com, get involved in our communities. We'd love to have you along for the ride, precure.com. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight